I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to a summer special episode of Undercurrents, the Chatham House podcast. Hello, and welcome back to this, the second special episode we've got for you over our summer break, where we're bringing you a couple of interviews that we recorded before we all went off on holiday, sunning ourselves on lovely European beaches. This interview is with Alison Gardner, who is a lecturer at the University of Kiel and is a world expert on artificial intelligence. We spoke about AI, the rise of these new technologies and whether regulators have the ability to ensure that these technologies properly represent society as it exists and does not discriminate against minorities and women in particular. This interview was recorded back in July at Chatham House's International Policy Forum on Gender and Growth, which is run by our Global Economy and Finance Department. And it was a really, really interesting conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, so now I'm joined by Dr. Alison Gardner, who is lecturer in data science at Keele University. And uh, we're here to talk today about artificial intelligence and how it's potentially going to change the world. Something terrifying that I feel I ought to understand more about, so I'm very glad that Alison's here. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, sorry, this is a horrendously broad question to begin with, but... Um, artificial intelligence, what is its transformative potential? How is it How is it going to be changing our world in the near future? The big argument is, is that it's the fourth industrial revolution and it, it will revolutionise the world of work. It'll make work um, the world of work quicker and more efficient and therefore we won't need to work. The, the sales pitch is we won't need to work five days a week. Um, we can work less times and have more time for leisure. So this is the sales pitch for AI because we can do more very quickly. So instead of a, a lawyer um, or trainee lawyer sitting down and going through loads and loads and loads and loads of past law cases, we could use an, an AI to read through all of those and flag up relevant articles and it's it's time saving. That's the sales pitch yeah. and that's why it could be very useful in many, many um, areas. And another reason why people are very keen on it is they feel that it will allow, it would remove human bias. Because if you're using um, an, an AI, people think it's objective and they think it is accurate and therefore you will get better results. And that is the sort of thinking around it when, when people sort of, claim of the virtues of AI but it can also done in the correct way um, democratize the world it can give agency to people access there's some good um, discussions earlier on about how um, people can have digital wallets and digital identity for refugees so that they, they can't carry documents with them but they can keep things in the cloud so that's less AI and more digital but there are benefits too but we have to utilize it in the correct way mm. and it's with, with many many types of technology um, it can might be developed for good but it can also be abused and so it's how we implement the systems that's very important rather than the technology itself in my view well, i mean it sounded sounded very cushy i thought i oh, put my feet up it's all going to be good we can mm. uh, we can relax but, but, but so what is the 
What's the small print behind that? Okay, well, am I, and I, I, I wonder about the logic behind this because, you know, <laughs> do you really think companies are going to pay people the equivalent of five days as they do now if somebody's only there for three days? People think, that, oh, yes, I'll, I'll earn the same. Um, but I'll have more free time. They won't turn the same. And, and one of the kickbacks for this, we're going away from AI a bit, but we're talking about the changing world of work, which AI impacts, is that what you're getting is the gig economy. You're getting zero-hour contracts. You're getting less secure work, as well as many key pieces of work and, and you know labour markets being threatened by, by the implementation of AI and those jobs disappearing. And again, you get this big argument, oh, it's, well, we will create more jobs, there'll just be new types of jobs via AI than the old type of jobs. And that may well be, but what do we do in the transition phase and what do we do about those people? And we've seen this when we've had great technological disruption, that you can have get whole swathes of people, whole communities that suddenly become disenfranchised and they haven't retrained and they haven't access to the new new world of work and, and and this is where we have some problems so the impact of ai again has much wider implications um, to the future as to how we address our economy how we address our world of work and whenever you have something like this the people who are usually most badly affected are women so again, so this is my area with, with you know with the idea of gender and diversity within the field of AI, but it's also its impact will also impact disproportionately on women as well. Okay, well let's turn to that aspect of, of AI then. So why is it that you think that there is this potentially negative impact on women? Okay, uh, well as fact it might threaten traditionally female roles, but one of the things with AI um, and coming right sort of back into the technology 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 side of things <laughs> is how AI is developed and we have a real issue with machine bias at the moment within the field of AI right. that can actually embed discrimination within our systems so if you think about an example would be if we use artificial intelligence or machine learning there's slightly two different areas very related in determining mortgage applications or determining um, loan applications and that system is actually a bias where it will disproportionately reject female applicants uh, because they are usually coming from a less um, traditional working background with you know with with lower pay or or with with job gaps or so on and so forth um, or haven't had bank accounts because they've been in a traditional role where they haven't haven't been accessing with that one so that system then will be trained on past financial data of who's paid and, and stuff and therefore it will just re reinforce current biases embedded by humans and it becomes embedded within our systems and we don't question it mm. same with recidivism um, algorithms and predictive predictive policing algorithms are very um, 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 problematic in terms of that they can be discriminatory against people of color and uh, so there's some classic examples such as Compass, which is a sort of de facto regular example, um, which was uh, it, it was meant to be a post-sentencing tool for judges to determine, I think, parole. Um, but it started becoming used as a pre-sentencing tool. So when you're looking at whether somebody should go into prison or whether they'd be released on bail or, or put into a different type of um, uh, community program, uh, this this algorithm would predict the likelihood of that person reoffending, and but it's built upon data 
which is biased. Um, it disproportionately has black people within that because they've been, you know, societal issues have meant they've been disproportionately targeted and 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 um, imprisoned for crime. And so that's what it's built. So it becomes embedded. And if you do, if you use these systems unquestioningly, unquestioningly, we're going to have discrimination hardwired into our society. Um, a- another example would be a classic one of uh, algorithms that can detect skin cancer. So they're fantastic. So, you know, you take a picture of, of, of a questionable mole and it will give you an idea of, of the probability of that being cancerous and then what, what you want to do. However, if that's been built on data that has come pr- predominantly from uh, images of white skin because you know of the environment where that data has been collected, they are actually less likely to predict cancer with people with black skin. So if you can imagine, therefore, you know, implementing that system within the NHS or within your theater, and it's fantastic, you're going to find that people of colour are going to have higher rates of cancer because it's not going to be picked up. So it's this very subtle discrimination that can occur, and it's inbuilt within usually biased data sets. Uh, so the Gender Shades project, Joy Bull and Winnie and Tim Nick um, from MIT did a fantastic project where they looked at um, facial recognition from images and whether the um, the algorithm could correctly identify people um, as male or female. And they found that the error rates for um, black females incorrectly identified at levels of 34%. A white male, the error rate was only 0.03% or something like that because it looked at the data sets, was built predominantly 70 to 80% on white males. Yeah. And so if you're looking at using facial recognition for whatever reason, uh, and there's a lot of issues with facial recognition going on in the um, all over the world at the moment um, as to whether that is an infringement on privacy and and whether it's accurate in the first place. Um, that's questionable. That's going to have bias against women and, and bias against people of colour. So there's some real issues there. Mm. How does one go about cleaning up those data sets? Like, is that something that we can do? Is that possible? Or should we just be moving away from relying on these to begin with that is a superb question so it goes away now from the high level discussions that everybody's having so like right okay we've identified this as an issue right so what are we physically going to do about it so there are a number of things we can do so um so a one of the problems with these bias data set that you have these huge huge you know what you think in retrospect is an obvious mistake and how on earth can bright intelligent people <coughs> Put through a system so obviously biased. You know what's going on, and it's not intentional, um, but it's because the development groups are so homogenous that they don't see the obvious. You know, when you're a white male, you're not going to look at a white male data set and see something odd. Mm. Um, so it goes through unquestionably. So, so one thing we need to do is increase the women in in AI, but specifically working within development and not peripheral, but actually in development, so that you have these mixed teams that can actually a come up with interesting problems to solve that might not be thought of before but also to address the whole way through that that problem of of these errors so when you're developing a system you'll start with your by your data set so is it biased so can you start doing various debiasing 
um, processes within that data set to try and reduce that level. So there's various things you can do depending on, on what your process is. You then have to do the data cleaning, the data normalisation, the pre-processing that you have to do. And even with pre-processing, there's questions you ask about whether how you... It depends on the question you form, how you would say, if you had a yes, no answer, do I turn that into a yes, into a one or a zero? Mm. What is my question? So it's quite subtle, actually. You then have your feature selections. So so which features do I put through the algorithm? Um, so you go through a whole load of feature selections. So what values am I putting on what features I'm going to include? Now, there's algorithms that do that for you but sometimes it's statistical but actually there is a little bit of human eye judgment in there and again so buyers could inject there Mm. in some machine learning algorithms you set the weightings so which features are more important than the other so you weight more heavily so again there's decisions making there so this is not an auto you know this is not a process that does not have human decision making all the way through it it's incredibly hands-on yeah so you send and and the big thing put it through the algorithm which can um, augment any bias that's already there coming out of the other um, end of the system you might have if it's a prediction or a recommendation or a classification system so it might be that this information comes out at a various probability level. So let's just say, for example, let's stick with recidivism algorithm. So this person is likely to reoffend at a probability of 70%. Mm. So um, now, where do I put my threshold? Do I put my threshold as well? It's 50%. So anybody over 50%, they're likely to reoffend, we put them into prison. Um, and how does that affect my accuracy of prediction? How many false positives would I have? Mm. So that's people who would not reoffend, but I'm putting into prison anyway. So the harm there. How many false negatives would I have? So how many violent offenders who will reoffend am I letting go free? Which is the biggest risk? Which is the biggest harm? Where's my value judgment there? And where do I set my threshold for the probabilities? That's 50, 60, 70, 80. How does that affect my accuracy? And and how do I implement that system? So again, you can see how this human decision making and that can be particularly at that point, um, based upon value judgments and opinion. So this broad spectrum of diverse developers is really important. And finally, what's really important is a lot of these systems are implemented and the get-out clause I'm seeing quite a bit, some of them with some government um, systems that they're using, where they, they say, well, it doesn't matter if it's not quite perfect because we have a human at the end um, who is making the final decision and it's just feeding into their decision-making process. This is from GDPR, mm. um, you know, Article 22, I think, or is it 15? I always get, get them all mixed up. But this idea of the human decision making um, and you're not you're not um, solely processed by um, an algorithm the problem with that is that people default to the algorithmic decision Um, and so it's a bit of a human in the loop hole as I call it rather than a human in the loop and it depends on the training level of that that person as to how much weight they give to the algorithmic decision or or not so the more experienced you are and the more knowledgeable you are the more cynical you tend to be um, as research has found so there is an issue there that if you have um a lower skilled you know low you know workers they will default to the algorithm and there's a hidden issue sorry a, a bit of a passion issue again 
findings of, are coming across that the utilization of these algorithms can de-skill our workforce because they depend upon this they their decision making skills of themselves can can actually be reduced and, and, and it is a worry and of course corporations or public sectors that are strapped for cash if they can do things with fewer people quicker and at a lower wage level they will yes. um, and so we start losing this expertise and this this human touch so it's it's a whole way along the chain um, all the issues can exist so how do we solve it um, developing really good quality standards so that we can start working out how when if you're developing a system what is the best process and protocols to work through to make sure that you de-bias? So I work on IEEE um, P7003, algorithmic bias um, standard, and we're sort of instilling that of how you do stakeholder analysis, how you do algorithmic impact assessments, how you should engage with, with all the stakeholders, have diverse teams, as well as how you would look at uh, you know measuring um, and de-biasing as you go along and doing the, the fairness metrics to check for that bias and the outcome. And again ISO are doing the same so these standards are really important because any regulation that's people are talking about we need to regulate AI um, they will possibly default to the standards and so it is actually at the standard level we need to keep things going and then education as well and education is always core cool for everything <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, going back to the idea about the sort of skills that people need I mean the way you were talking about the sort of decisions that have to be made about what to include and what not to include, particularly when you're coming back to the data set. It's, it sounds almost like the training that you need is something like you need far more sort of ethics involved, right? It's it's completely about kind of moral decisions and things. It's not necessarily about, or it's it's about technical expertise, but also about these kind of sort of softer things. Do you think that the industry is acknowledging this? Do you think that they're going to be recruiting a different kind of person? I think the industry are calling for a broader type of person. History has um, defined, based on a research finding many years ago in the 60s, I think, from two psychologists saying, oh, the best type of programmer is this is, is male with who poor social skills. And it basically <laughs> constructed the image of the nerd, and that's this is what we've created. Well, that's a stereotype in itself. It is a stereotype, <laughs> but it was a created stereotype, yeah. um, to be truthful. And, and the field has developed to sort of, you know, in that, that in that frame um, but you'll, you'll hear that no we need people with broader skills um, and I hate the term soft skills because I think they're the complex skills because they're mm. the skills AI can't re replicate um, rather than the hard skills um, which are you know so there's 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 hints in the genderization of language there you think hard skills and soft skills and you know, masculine and feminine but anyway mm. um, they, they, they are really calling out for it and I think Universities are beginning to wake up to it um, a bit slowly. Uh, we do need to have computer scientists being um, trained and taught within colleges and universities where ethics is embedded across the board um, and the need for diversity as well, across the board of the subject areas in all modules, not as a separate elective module that they can do so but but all the way through that this is something that is this totally core to the subject area and a key thing um, as I work within the field of data science but AI as well is it is actually multidisciplinary what you've just sort of talked about is these questions that you're asking are actually 
you know, you, you need the philosophers, you need the psychologists, you need exactly. the social scientists, you need the humanities within there. You know, you know, all with those skills that they have as to what questions need to be asked, how you ask them, and what decisions do you make. And it's that multidisciplinary approach that I think is going to be embedded. So, yes, I want to bring ethics into computer science courses. So Harvard, for example, do this called Embedded Ethics. I'm trying to implement it the same at Kiel with our degree apprenticeship programme. Uh, but we should also leap out of the computer science department into other departments within universities. So I'd like to see data science or AI for law modules within law courses, um, within philosophy courses, you know, so to training this wider network up because this is one of the most multidisciplinary fields you can come across. So that's a superb question and I think we're beginning to have that discussion now, um, but not quickly enough. Now I'd just like to move away slightly from sort of the square on AI issue and talk maybe a bit more about the technology industry. Um, now I was reading a report recently about the um, gender balance in the tech sector and how it's massively overwhelmingly male dominated but that wasn't always the case was it I, th I think historically actually some of the sort of pioneering key figures in computer science and tech were women why do you think there's been this shift um there is it, it was deliberate. It was designed. Um, there's a great book by a book by Ma Hicks, um, which is and I, I I can't remember the name of it. So sorry, um, Ma Hicks, but do <laughs> Google it. Um, looked at how the field of of, of computer science was deliberately re-engineered to be male orientated. So originally, yes, the the the, the founders. Um, were mainly women and we walk past the house of Ada Lovelace of course, yeah. I shall have my selfie outside of that when I leave <laughs> um, and and it was originally seen as a secretarial role um, it was you know a machine grade position uh, with you know 50s and 60s um, so it was very much 50-50 and then female but of course that was limited to those women you know they couldn't get promoted it was assumed that they you know when they got married they'd leave because that was the culture then within the, the western world within the UK so I'm talking from a UK perspective and um, what happened was when it started to realise that computer science and programming was going to be a very valuable field as often happens that's when the men moved in they redefined the field as something that wasn't machine grade um, as an executive grade position and you actually had things like um, the machine grade programmers were teaching sort of these men that were coming in that were selected via um, personality profiles and that were designed to to you know, prefer male characteristics as was then, or male qualifications that men uh, were more likely to do than females, and uh, train them up, and then they'd become their her boss. There's a good story at the beginning of that one, and so it developed, um, and women were eventually pushed out, and it was created deliberately engineered to be this male field, and women were prevented from from continuing through it. I mean, there are a few that. You know, barge through though those barriers, but as a rule, that was the case. Um, and then we started to readdress that problem, as we did with all STEM subjects. And then this wonderful, it's a wonderful graph that came out with ACM and Wired, some research that they did, where around about 1984, where all the other STEM subjects were still increasing in their gender parity, suddenly computer science started going backwards. 
and so, uh, going down again. Mm. Um, and so to the point now where we're looking at within um, AI, for example, about 12%, um, 9 to 12% of actual developers within AI are, are women. Um, and why has that happened? Um, you know, why is that happening? Women are perfectly capable. Clearly they were because it used to be a female field. So all this business of this, 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 um, I don't know, this Wild West attitude and this kudos giving to maths and this overcomplication of things made it quite an unfriendly place for, for, for women. And um, it, it was just constructed. So they've just left. The, the actual culture and the environment is so unfriendly to women that even if they enter it, they leave pretty quickly because A, they lose confidence um, and, and B, it's just not a pleasant place to be, and so we're so we're losing them from from the field as well. So we're not getting them in, and when we do get them in, we're losing them, um, and and it is it is a real issue, and it's got nothing to do with ability, and it actually has got nothing to do with confidence because uh, again, research shows that men and women start with the same level of confidence and enthusiasm, but it just gets bashed out of the women um, very subtly sometimes, and and they they give up and go. Um, and one one story just recently, this is 2019, okay, so just 2019, we're not 1950 or 1970, this is 2019, and I had a friend who returned to tech after a, a, a career break, and she, you know, upskilled the programming again and went back into tech, and, they were, you know, she was ever so welcomed, they were really enthusiastic to welcome her, and they said, I wanted to reassure her what a fantastic workplace she was coming into because they had a table football uh, machine and they had their meetings in the local lap dancing club. Oh True story. <laughs> and you think, really? You know, so so we're still in this 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 world of ping pong tables and bean bags on the floor and you know culture that needs to change really. Mm. Okay, so obviously that's a pretty stark picture that you've painted there. Um do you think that has to be addressed before we can even get on to addressing any of the more kind of technical sort of scary data stuff we were talking about earlier? No, because I, th I think we can actually use the problems that have been highlighted with the scary stuff because that's really thrown up quite a lot of interest. It's got, got politicians interested. It's, it's got high-level people interested in it as of the impact and the, and, and the threats to this. So we can actually utilise that that focus um, to start working backwards. Uh, I mean, we've been people have been working on this issue for years and years and years. You know, we we've I run a women leading in AI, which is a women's network. Um, it, it's not one where you do training courses for women and they learn to be confident because we believe women are confident and capable already. This is just to give a power. Of, of, of a wide connection of women. So it's not just me you're talking to, you're talking to a whole bunch of very influential women and that comes, you know, and, and that helps me in, in my access to my place, in my places like this, like Chatham House. Um, so, so we can use that problem to try and re address this other problem. And for years, as I said, we've been doing things like mentoring schemes, we've been doing things like girl, um, girl code clubs, they haven't made a difference um, because they, you know, we haven't changed the culture. So if we develop regulations and standards that require diverse development teams, and if within those requirements uh, you are going to procure a system and you need to show that that system has been developed ethically, you want certification 
for example, or, or, or Trustmark. There's conversations about mm. that now. And to gain that, you have to show, A, you've got diversity within your team de and development, and it's been ethically developed. That now gives a profit incentive to those companies. Once you hit the pockets, then they're going to start going, well, we actually need these teams. This is going to affect us now. And I'm sorry, you know, we're going to have to have these diverse teams and we're going to have to look at why there is this culture. And if there is unconscious bias within behaviour in the workplace, um, when women stand up and say, I'm sorry, but that's not sensible behaviour, don't speak to me about it, it's going to have equal voice, um, they, they can't be pushed away with that's just exactly. banter we were just joking or yeah. you know is it time of the month comments which we believe it not we still get um that they have equal voice because it's going to be important so i'm hoping that this will be the nudge regulation and standards and certification will be the nudge that we finally need to get the men um and the people you know the ceos to, to wake up and realise that they have to actually do something like that and that diversity isn't just a women's issue. It's actually a very, very serious societal issue and company issue as well. Absolutely. And just lastly, are you optimistic about this? Do you think this is changing? Do you think we're going to move in the right direction? Um, it's a race because the tech is developing so fast, yeah. faster than we can regulate, um, and there is a lot of lobbying. There's a lot of interested, huge multinational corporations um, wanting to control the development of the standards, development of the regulation, um, and to get this out there quickly. So there's this big groundswell that's happening. So you've seen recently that there's been calls for a moratorium on facial recognition technology because mm. we just don't think we're there yet. And yes. um, this is what people must understand. These algorithms aren't as, as accurate or as objective as people think they are, and this is really important. So this idea of this moratorium so that we can allow regulation and standards to catch up um, before there's real harm done or because before these systems are so embedded it's going to be hard to retrofit them. So um, am, I, am I hopeful? Um, I, I am inspired by the fact that there is a lot of interest that the discussions within standards are going in the right direction. Um, but I am co conscious of the power, the interests of the multinational organisations and, and the the high-level discussions within governments that we're not aware of. So um, it's it's a battle. I actually really think it's a frontline battle. I actually, I actually, in my mind, I call it a fight. You know, this is the race to get good AI for the benefit of humans or, or AI that will just entrench capitalism and profit as we have been for many years over and above everything else. And it can cause real harm. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic because I'm in it and I'm going to fight tooth and nail for it. And I know lots of good people are doing the same. Alison Gardner, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>